Good morning, everybody. We are back. It is Dyslexia Coffee Talk time. We have a very special episode for you today. I'm Ashley here with Enid, and we have Marion Waldman and Faith Borkowski from Teach My Kid to Read, which is a nonprofit that Marion has created that is doing really amazing work. And we are so excited to share with you what Teach My Kid to Read is and what Marion is setting the world on fire accomplishing. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Well, I'm talking about this. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I don't even know how to. I don't know how to segue into this because really, I'm I'm just so flattered by that by this introduction. And uh, uh, where do where do we start uh, with teach my kid to read? It, three years ago, I was at the I was at Camp Dunabek at the Kildonan School, and like so many parents, I had spent years trying to get my daughter the right services, and then trying to find the right, uh, trying to find uh, teachers or tutors who could actually te- who could actually teach her to read. And my background is in educational publishing and uh, decades working with textbooks and content and online courseware. And uh, I think that part of my slowness to really enter this world was that I thought I had it. I thought, my God, I was an English major, a writing tutor, a natural reader. I'm in publishing. My colleagues are the greatest copy editors in the world. And, you know, if if my daughter can't learn to read, well, we'll build her. You know, we know how to build this stuff. I mean, this will be okay. And it just wasn't. And it took me a long time to even realize all the basic information that I didn't know. And it was almost overwhelming. Like, how do you even nowhere to start. And so I kind of landed like a lot of people at a point where our lives became about getting our daughter, the uh, teaching our daughter to read. And so this odd summer three years ago, and it really was odd because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not that young. And the two of us were alone in the middle of nowhere while she, she's, she was going into, I think, fifth or sixth, sixth grade. And, and uh, she's going to camp and I'm uh, with my dog in the middle of nowhere, driving her back and forth to the Kildonan school. And she's learning to read and she's happy. And there's all these kids there and there's all these bewildered parents. And I must, I, I, by that point, I wasn't working for the major publishers. I was a partner in a small business and we were doing, we were doing courseware. I'd worked in education. Uh, I knew what the curricula was for educators, for reading specialists. Never crossed my mind there was anything, anything going on with the content. Um, but I couldn't work that summer because there was no Wi-Fi. Uh, there wasn't cell phone service. And I was, I, I felt like I was on Mars. Like, why are who are these kids and they're happy and they're learning to read and my daughter's bringing home uh, letters of uh, messages uh, notes that her friends are writing her and they all write like her and she's reading and so I started writing about it and uh the short of it, gosh, I wish a, a friend of mine from college came up and I'm from New Jersey. I'm actually from downstate. And so my, my friend Barb came up and, uh, you know, wearing 
gosh, you know, I guess I could say this. I'm from New Jersey, wearing New Jersey clothes and heels, and I'm kind of in the middle of nowhere, you know, in Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut corner. And she's like, let's do a blog. And we're laughing, trying to come up with names, and everything was taken. So we're just building this blog, and I'm writing. And, and, and she's like, let's, I, I, eventually we landed on Teach My Kid to Read. And I started blogging, and it was an odd summer. And matter of fact, I get a little bit off on a tangent, but I remember going to some seminars there on OG. And, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I read boring things for a living. I read textbooks, but, you know, I wasn't <laughs> grasping, you know, I wasn't grasping like OG, like the, the world was still, the information was still a little bit above me. I was groping around thinking I, I must be missing something because I've kind of lived in this world. I wasn't an engineer. I mean, I wasn't in a profession that was an ocean away from this reading world, but I didn't know about it. And that's one of the things I'll say too with the publishers is, is we don't always know this world exists, the, especially the higher ed publishers, because, you know, I was one of them and, and I've educated a lot of my colleagues over the years. Um, but we're, we're pretty clueless about this stuff. So anyway, to make a long story short, I started blogging and I was really just, what I was really upset about was higher education because I was so proud of my career, which was vocational education and, and higher ed. And I believed in it. And I just felt that the content and the curricula and everything that my colleagues and I had done over the years was just such good work. And my authors were all higher education. I was what's called an acquisitions editor. And, you know, my, my authors were higher education professors over the years. They were some, they're some of my best friends. And how could higher ed have betrayed us? How could the problem have started in higher ed? So once we realized we were going to be more than a blog for the longest time, that's where I thought we would go. I thought we're going to really study these, um, the knowledge practice standards and we're going to, and I think I told probably even Faith, everybody I met, I said, we are going to, we're going to make an impact in higher ed. We know how to do these. We know how to do courses. We know how to sneak content in and we're going to go to the publishers and say, Hey, you've got some education text, but did you know you're not presenting, you know, the five pillars of reading? And did you know there's all these ways that we can be start, that we can start to create assets and create content and let's start marrying it in. And I'm not even sure now that that could be done because, you know, you can't teach anything in isolation, but we were just really me and some of my colleagues that I enlisted, that's where we were going to go. But I knew nothing about the nonprofit world. I'm totally from the for-profit world. So I had to learn the nonprofit world and how it works. And uh, nobody was giving us money. Nobody thought that was a good idea. Um, when we were applying for grants and I said, oh, we want to create all these courses for higher ed. And so I created, you know, we, we got our 501c3 status and I, I started to really get to know the world. The first person I ever met who took me seriously is Nancy Duggan in Massachusetts. And uh, I'll, ever be, I'll forever be her buddy for that. And um, anyway, we, we, we became an organization. And one of the things that was really bugging me was I did a lot of talking as I'm doing now. And the last thing I wanted to do was to be known as another organization that, that talked a lot. I felt like the most important thing we could do was create impact, even if it wasn't in the direction that maybe we're qualified or intended to go. So 
one of the uh, over the years, the last couple of years, we were always discussing discussing decodables on and off amongst parents. Why didn't the libraries carry them? Why don't the libraries? Why didn't the libraries help us? And Faith and I, once I got to know Faith Burkowski, you know, she was very much, you know, a, a force of, of a backdoor approach. And uh, she was always doing something. And that's why I like, that's why I reached out to Faith. She was, she was writing books. She was saying things that made, she was saying things that made sense. And we started talking about what an organization could do. And in the course of this, Faith happened to email a library and say, don't call the decodable book section the dyslexia section. It's, it's, it's for all readers. And I was so impressed with that. I'm like, see, look, they, they wrote back. They said, you're right. We've changed it. And of course, we come to find out it's, in, it's a library in New Zealand because we wanted to go visit them. So we, we won't be seeing them for a while. Um, but it was really quite amazing. And uh, we revised our, our business plan so that we we had a couple of short we had a couple of short term activities we wanted to do short term strategies and one of them was call on the libraries uh, start to bridge the gaps in the community but again nothing formal faith had emailed the libraries and we didn't have any formal plans but I was doing some advocacy work myself and another board member because I we're based in Albany so even though you know my background isn't in government and if there's anything I never thought I would be doing it's advocacy work in government but by default we are here in Albany so there we were and we started meeting with our legislators and when I say our board members they have the same background as me at least they did at the time so we're doing advocacy work so we listen like we're at a, a business meeting we take notes we ask them what we're supposed to do um, maybe that is what advocacy work is and we tell them what we're all about and how we want to work in higher education but we've got some other strategies and a legislator said to said to us Somebody needs to create awareness in New York and we need to start bridging the gap in the community. Everything Faith was saying, you know, pediatricians, daycare workers, early child care workers and librarians. So I happened to say, oh, we have vague ideas to go into the library because, you know, nobody seems to the librarians don't carry decodable books or know what they are. And we have this this plan. I said, it's not really fleshed out. And I am not kidding. She walked us down to the library chairperson at the Capitol with, I had, I had like a, a word document and he, I, I didn't even know what I was going to say to the guy. Um, but he's, you know, I said, well, we have a library program. It's, 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 we're just starting out. And, um, you know, anyway, to make, a, a, to, to try to put some, some closure to this, uh, we built the program. We quickly, uh, we quickly, uh, went back to, uh, to the drawing board and looked at it with fresh eyes and we decided we were going to contact we were going to contact 50 libraries in new york and our strategy was going to be would be that we would educate them about decodable books because maybe the librarians weren't maybe they they weren't our friends in this world because nobody had ever asked them or educated them or given them context to their role that they play in our lives on so many levels so let's just try talking to them have a simple goal 50 libraries, we'll educate them about decodable books, we'll create a little infographic that'll simplify the science of reading, and we'll call the decodable publishers and see if they can get on board and give them some samples or make it a little bit easier for them. 
Uh, we got Glean education. Uh, we worked with them so we could get access to the libraries for a free one-hour course. And off we went. And uh, it was mind-blowing, quite honestly. Um, I know Fa I remember when Faith and I spoke, both of us, after the first library that we ever talked to when we were still getting our arms around our approach. And we just couldn't believe, you know, how, and, and I should say nine out of 10 of the libraries. It's not always easy, but just, you know, how they have the same goals as us, but um, they're so new to our world. It's such a different way of presenting our information. And we decided then we got to know that world that we have to go at the systems level. If we're gonna educate the librarians, especially in New York, we have 23 library systems. We can't visit all the libraries. We need to see if we can do some professional development at the systems level and then meet individually with the libraries. So that's the direction we started going in. And, you know, you know, the first phase of the program, we worked where we worked with the ton of libraries in New York. We got some other states on board. It was way more um, of a shotgun approach than we would have liked if we had planned way in advance. Uh, but it enabled us to get some data, uh, get our arms around what the cost could be of the program and to see what we could start to achieve for this um, for this next phase of the program. And, 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 you know, quite honestly, I had a library training on uh, a library presentation on, on Thursday. And, you know, a lot of people ask me for or ask us about, oh, I want to contact my library or that's another state, you know, what what can you give me? And, and um, you know, sometimes we'll give some, we'll, we'll give some files, a volunteer, volunteer packet, but for the, the, the library at, at the highest level, the library system training that we're doing, we're still getting our arms even around what works because uh, I did a post to one of our uh, Facebook groups yesterday. Uh, I feel like we've gotten almost much more heavy into what their role is and to what the impact they have on our lives. I mean, I was talking to them about our current legislation that if we do have universal screening or um, even if we don't with the current RTI, when parents get a letter in the mail, whether it's that their child is at risk for a reading issue like dyslexia or um, gosh, you know, even once a year, that letter that we get saying, you know, after the, after the post IEP meeting that your child has been classified as a child with a learning disability, this rocks us. And that's what I want them to know is that uh, they need to be there for us to give us some guidance. They don't have to be literacy specialists, but they have to say, oh, I know other families have used these books or this is really the approach you should learn to reading. Or this is where some, where I've heard that schools, this is where I've heard that schools go wrong, but you know, I'll go so as far as far to tell them that, you know, if you're having a bad day and you've had a parent come in over and over, you know, bugging you that their kid's not learning to read and, and you're thinking this isn't your job or, you know, I've showed them some of the phonics based books and you know, what I'm trying to tell them is your word, your reaction is very, very profound to us because we may not have any place to turn. We may not have got the pediatrician may not know. And maybe, you know, we have ways there's fake. We have ways to to bridge that gap. But just what I have found is besides the science of reading, um, you know, the decodable books and uh 
all of the buzzwords of our world, the most important thing we can do is tell them our stories first and, and, and just give them some understanding of their role and what they can start doing. And, you know, then we get into the science of reading and uh, we get into, you know, how they can educate parents about, you know, phonological awareness and phonemic awareness and decodables and, you know, faith, I bring in itchy now with some phonics and some, you know, some, some writing and where the decodables fit, but it's a lot. And, you know, I've kind of taken a breath, a, a breath with them and said, you know, I feel badly. I just left and I don't know that they really fit, understand how decodables fit versus predictable and leveled readers. So I tell them to quickly join our Facebook group, Decodable Books and Literacy Resources. But there's a lot to tell them. And, you know, they're, um, they're, they're, they're new to our world. So that's a very, very long-winded explanation of our library program. But obviously, you know, I get fired up about this. And, you know, Faith's books are just amazing. I hold up her, I hold up her books and show them that they can stock these books and give them out to parents. And, you know, it's just wonderful when afterwards, after a library presentation, you start talking individually to libraries. And this is where we need volunteers because we don't have enough volunteers and we're just, we have, we have a lot more planned than just this professional development with the library, but I try not to, you know, ramble on and have people lose me in these, you know, in these discussions, but just to have librarians come up afterwards and, you know, just have ideas about what they can do for their community. And we talk about things like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, a few of you can get together and, and even get some of the Barton CDs. I mean, there are solutions that, you know, that they can come up with too once you recommend what's out there in this world and what this world is. So that's that's enough for me for now. <laughs> well, there's some good questions that came in while you were talking. So one of the questions that just, uh, what are the best decodable books that would rec that you would recommend for the library to purchase? Is that well, no, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, said, go to your website for that, right? I mean, is that what you're basically well, just saying? Let me, let me jump in and okay. say um, we are not connected to the publishers of the decodable books. So um, what our plan is um, to look at the decodable books and to have a way for other people to make good choices. So we're, we're not advertising for our company, mm -hmm. but um, good decodable books should have a sequence. They should be cumulative in nature. And what I mean by that is they build up from, let's say, short vowels and simple consonants so that children get practice in blending and, and looking at it in connected text. And then it moves on to two letters that make one sound, such as a digraph. I, I, I don't want to use technical language, but like S-H-T-H-C-H, blends, um, B-L, B-R, and to be able to blend those together. And then the books would get into harder material, like vowel teams and multisyllable words. So any good... Um, decodable book series will have a sequence that's cumulative, it's sequential, gives kids a lot of practice. 
The better decodable books offer a lot of different choices at different points along this continuum. So uh, that's important. So our job is really not to say, get this um, you know, series, yeah. even though there are some really good ones mm -hmm. out there. And we do have a recommended list, but um, I don't think it's really our place to say, get one, um, right. because so there important. are a bunch right. of them that are quite good. Yeah, right. and you bring up a really good point too. Sorry, real quick about the practice. So I work with kids outside of the school and some of them while they're at school. And not one of my students is practicing at school. Literally, like I will say to them, do you read at school? I fake read, they tell me. Um, I fake read and I listen to books. And this is part of the problem too with um, assistive technology is a beautiful thing when it assists the struggle. But when kids are just listening to books in a corner of a room and not reading these decodable books. And so you bring up such a good point because in every situation, every IEP I'm involved in, I say, when do they have opportunities to practice with decodable books, right? Because if we don't have opportunities to practice these isolated skills we're learning, we will not generalize these skills. And that is a lot of the reason why a lot of these kids aren't progressing in school is because they don't have the practice. And so we need decodable books and they need opportunities to practice. So I'm reading with all of my students now because they don't have, and then we're writing it into the IEPs that they're actually sitting with a, a teacher and the teacher's watching to see where they're, you know, as we know, Faith, where they have bad habits, where they're guessing, where they're using, you know, relying on context clues. If nobody's sitting there and doing that with them, with decodable books, it's kind of, you know, it's all wasted really. And the kids aren't progressing because they're not practicing. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could tell you from my own experience uh, that children come here and they'll tell me that they jump from a phonics lesson into mm -hmm. books that offer them no practice. Right. And um, unless we're providing this practice, mm -hmm. it goes out the window. It's exactly. there's a disconnect mm -hmm. between a phonics lesson mm -hmm. and then a leveled book. And right. so we're we're looking to fill a void and many schools do not have access to decodable books because mm -hmm. they were not ordered. So by telling the librarians that there is this empty space that needs to be filled and a library is the perfect place to do it and to have our librarians understand the purpose of decodable books and how to guide parents and teachers as well. Yep. It's important. Well, and it achieves a, it, it achieves an amazing thing too, because then you're reaching far more of the varying socioeconomic groups across the country as well, because you're just not real, you know, you're just not talking to an audience of parents who might, you know, go on Amazon and try to look up decodable books and order a set of decodable books. Mm -hmm. You're tapping into everybody that accesses libraries because, you know, everybody goes or, I like to think everybody goes to the library, right? But the library has is such a core of what our country is and the education system, et cetera. It's, it's where we do a lot of our research. It's where we access things that we need. And it's so much of what they offer is free of cost. You just have to have a membership to the library. So it's an amazing place to go do that. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there is one issue, though. Um, well, there are two points I just wanted to add to, uh, to um, everything you, all these good points. And one was that 
in the event that the, that the, that the school, um, that the child is getting good intervention services, I've, we've received calls from parents saying, hey, I went to the library exactly as you said, so they could practice and they didn't carry the books. And I was kind of surprised at first because we're used to more people going either, you know, for, for prevention or, or in crisis, not that their kids are actually finally, you know, progressing, but where's the book? So that was one thing. The second thing is, is that these books are not easy for libraries to carry. And so I'm guessing some of the people who have asked the question have had libraries say, I can't get these books. And that is an issue that's even in our presentation. We talk about Bob books because I'll be in Rochester at Monroe County in a couple of weeks. And they said, we've ordered, we, we heard you're coming. We ordered Bob books. And, uh, you know, I, it, we, we had some discussion about it in our uh, decodable book and literacy resource Facebook group or Bob. I mean, Bob books are are good. They're not going to help our kids that are sort of they're not a, a they're not a reading. You know, it's not a reading program, uh, but they're the easiest decodables for them to get. And sometimes it's an easy lead in for the library. But unfortunately, a lot of these books are not carried by the libraries. Some of the libraries have very uh, heavy processes they have to go through to order their books. Some, almost all of them go through a major distributor, one or two distributors. Uh, some have a very easy time ordering from whoever they want or, or Amazon, and some don't. And that has created some issues. And that's why I don't know if you saw that we have requested sometimes donations so we can buy some, so we can get some samples from the decodables for the libraries that just can't get them, or um, we're not sure how much we'll formalize it for this program, but I asked all the decodable book publishers that we work with to give a list of like, what would be your best sample so we could get some donations for samples because it can be an issue getting them books that the distributors don't carry or from some of the smaller publishers that are even outside, you know, every blue moon, somebody's even outside Amazon, not usually. So um, I get where people would ask which ones to get, because I mean, quite honestly, Faith is right. We have no financial relationship um, with them and we do not want, we, we want to give them information. I mean, I'm working on a table, you know, every spare minute that lists them all and who it's for and what the scope and sequence and what program. And I keep hoping somebody who loves doing stuff like that is going to come volunteer. Oh, I, let me, let me put this together for you. But that would be there's, for, for There's actually, for I'm sorry, there's actually a good question up here. I don't know, Marion, if you're able to see no, the question. No, I am not. Um, but there is a good question here, or actually a comment from Nikki. Um, yeah. Our special ed teacher um, uh, wants to know the difference between control text and predictable text. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very important that yes. um, we take a look at the definitions because there's a lot of confusion between oh predictable, controlled, decodable? What do we really mean by getting these types of books into the library? And um, I want to just clear up that predictable text is what is traditionally in um, the early grades. These level books have predictable phrases where there are um, repetitive high frequency words, and this is how children are um, expected to learn to read. Uh, the difference in decodables is that uh, it's not about just memorizing words. It's about learning the alphabetic code and offering practice with that. 
So um, it's controlled in the sense that we're not going to throw in vowel teams that were not taught, like AI and AY or um, EA, until they have mastered short vowel sounds and how to blend left to right and all through the word. So I hope that clears up um, you know, some confusion about what types of books we're looking to bring into the library. Well, and I love that you made that clarification because um, the terms are so complicated, obviously. And I'm listening to everyone talk and we're talking about taking action and what can we do? You know, where, how can we get more funding for, you know, uh, the books in the library? And truly, it all starts with awareness. Um, we went to a mixer the other night with the uh, uh, Sacramento soccer team and was speaking with a, a gentleman. And, and he said, forgive me. He goes, I don't know anything about dyslexia. He said... It's a, it's a vision thing, right? Letters backwards. And I said, no, no. And we talked a little bit about it. And by the end of the conversation, he said, I bet a lot of the guys on the team have dyslexia. So the point is, is that we really with, and so I want to bring up the fact that um, Faith, with your new series of books, what was brilliant about that is when I was in education, working in education, a lot of times I would hear, we don't know what we don't know. Okay. That was an interesting comment. And I heard it a lot. And so the issue is, is if we don't know what we don't know, sometimes we don't even know how to seek it out, right? And so what I love about the role playing in your books that you did is that for people who know that there's something, but they don't know what they don't know, and they don't know how to put words to it, you are able to do that through dialogues and role playing with librarians and pediatricians. And um, forgive me for the, what's the last, the third? The preschool so, teacher. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I mean, honestly, these are conversations that I've had over many years. So honestly, when I created this dialogue, it, it was really hearing the voices of parents. Mm -hmm. And that's what I try to do when I write. I try to write for people that really um, need to hear this. I mm -hmm. don't write an academic language. I try to make it as simple as possible, as relatable as possible, as if we're having a cup of coffee. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, you know, just chatting and um, easy. Mm -hmm. And if people want to go to something that's a little bit more academic, there are many choices out there. Yeah. But there aren't choices written by someone who is a teacher, who has the professional background, but who is able to talk as a parent and as a friend. And that's what I try to um, impart when I write, when I talk, that I'm not talking over someone's head. So I took these conversations that I've had with parents um, over the years and I created this fictitious family. Um, and I did not want to use uh, characters with people in them. I wanted to make it relatable. So no matter what your skin color is or um, gender, you could really relate to these stories without having an image in your mind. And my illustrator, um, Cheryl Rosenstock Marcus, who happens to be my childhood friend, um, did a wonderful job of uh, really getting the message across. I just love her illustrations because they're not babyish. 
They're there um, and really support the text. And she really understood what I was trying to do. I love the layout of the book. I'm sorry, what? I love the layout of the book. I'm sorry, Enid. I didn't mean to talk and, to and you. And that was um, Cheryl. You know, I, I, I did the script, but she did the layout and the illustrations. And mm -hmm. that's what she does. She's a graphic artist. So I was really fortunate to have her work with me. We had a great time. I love it. No, I just said, can you hold up the front of the book? I wasn't organized enough to bring mine today. Thank you. <laughs> so, because we'll post it later and then people can refer go, oh, that's the one they were talking about. Okay. And this, this is the combined version. This is books one, two, and three. Right. Okay. Which, yeah, is very helpful to have the combined yeah. version. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I did it separated because I did want it to be um, accessible to those different uh, people who would be interested. Yeah, so for that. a pediatrician, they don't necessarily have to read the whole book, right. but here's their part. Mm -hmm. And they each could be read as separate books, but they all connect in the big picture. And exactly. obviously for a parent, they wanna know how everything connects in the big picture. But right. um, if people did get the separate books, I encourage them to then give it away to those people. Oh, yeah. So, um, that. and that's why there is only a print version because mm -hmm. I do want the books to be given away. And uh, I didn't want it to just be something that you quickly look online and, and forget about it. I want it sitting in a pediatrician's office. I want it sitting in a daycare or preschool. I want it sitting in a library um, for people to look at and understand. So we did have one question come in, um, Marion. What is the URL for where you uh, have the recommended books listed? Oh, if you just go to our website, teachmykidtoread.org, uh, we have a list of all the decodable publishers. I don't know that we have, I have them in a separate handout as well. I, I should have checked before, but I don't know if we have that of the downloadable on the website, but I can, I can put that up later today. Just that one page at least of the, of the, uh, of the publishers. One of the most frequent questions that I know that we get on dyslexia initiative, it's a theme that definitely crosses over multiple postings that we do, et cetera, is teachers will come out and ask, um, you know, I, here, here's one that happened recently. I'm a second grade teacher. Um, what decodable books are recommended for me to have in my second grade classroom? We get, we get a lot of those kinds of questions. What kind of guidance would you, I know I tagged you, Marion, at the time and you were like, that's not very, that's not a very easy question, but what sort of guidance would you give to those teachers? Because truly that, that's a question that we get very frequently. Well, you know, I sometimes I, I do recommend a particular publisher just because they have a lot of variety. But usually when it's a teacher, I do try to find out if what their core curriculum is or their, or, or their or, or if they have a phonics based curriculum. I do mm -hmm. try to find out just that basic information because that would that alone would 
point you in, in the direction, but if you're just getting a general question of, um, you know, a second grade teacher who wants a lot of variety and wants a lot of, a lot of uh, hand-holding, we do try to, and, you know, again, I, I have a, uh, especially national. I'm not going to uh, say we recommend this specific publisher, right. but when we are, we are pushed, we do tend to go to the publishers that have more of the options for um, children that are at different phases in, you know, where they are in their phonics instruction. And I, I think that's a diplomatic way of, 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 of answering it. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and I just went completely blank on the question that I was going to ask you. I should have written it down. <laughs> you know what? They're also, they're temporary books. And I yes. think that's important to right. be yeah. knowledgeable about that. You know, when you say which books are appropriate for second grade, they're appropriate until a child doesn't need it anymore. Yes. That's really what it is. They're training wheels. Right. So, and I think that's why the books get a bad rap in the first place. Because mm -hmm. people think that those are the books that you need um, to last throughout, you know, your education. That's just right. not correct. Right. They're there for a purpose. They're there for practice of the code. Mm -hmm. And it's um, meant for children to read, to give them a sense of independent reading that they actually can read what's there. Mm -hmm. And then you move on. Yeah, and then they want them into books that they yes, can read whatever exactly. they choose to read. Right. So it's very hard to um, quantify it, um, how you know how long you do this for and what grade. It's it's there's a purpose, and uh, once the purpose is filled, you move on. Yeah. I think that's an amazing explanation. It, 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 you know, and that's why, too, even with our infographic, when we first went to the libraries, you know, we were uh, we did get some pushback is the library should be a, a sanctuary. It should be a reward. The, the library shouldn't be, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be a place that a child dreads because we're making them do something terrible. I mean, we're trying to point out everything, faith, you know, that this is training wheels and that this is temporary. And, and it's actually quite delightful if a child can actually read it and it will bring them joy. Um, but that's why on our infographic, we have a little treasure chest and we have, I have all this stuff behind me, but um, you probably can't see it, you know, that, that, that the world opens up once they can decode and uh, they're done. You know they're done with that, but that's why even even with our with all the information that we, we you know we provide you know it's it's all practice, but we try to at least make it look it you know it's happy, it's bright, it's um it's it's inviting, right? And uh, I, I'm pulling things away because I we have a toolkit for the librarians, and quite honestly, we have so much material we're putting together. And if you saw this dining room table, I have. I have here for the for the librarians, including a list of decodable books, which is uh, here's for a second. Here's the little list that go. We have a sample for them, uh, you know, for them now in their uh, in their toolkit. Um, you know, there's um, there's a lot of context. That, there's a lot of context that we give them. Um, but one thing I wanted to say, and I think I, I think I lost my train in the middle of the last thought, but um, is that 
in addition to training the librarians, everything that we're discussing with them, they want we want them to be able to, of course, immediately be able to be a better resource for the patrons, for families of early and struggling readers. And ultimately for this year, what we're working on with them is that they can even set up events or create toolkits, uh, struggling reader toolkits or, or handouts or events for, for children to walk through and start to, um, you know, practice some phonological skills all the way to some phonic skills and have a book display and parents can get handouts along the way. So that's what Faith and I have actually been been working on. And uh, it's new for our program this year. And I, I went through it a bit uh, at, at the training last week. And I think we're going to tweak it a little because one thing that, you know, again, happens in this world is we drown in terminology. And so there's another, actually, it's funny you say terminology. There's Another comment I see about authentic text. I was going to ask that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what do we mean by authentic? And this is interesting. Um, it's not written with controlled words, it's not written um, with uh, any type of uh, understanding about the alphabetic code. And obviously we want kids moving into authentic, but level text is not authentic either. And that's the misunderstanding. I think that people say, well, decodable is not interesting. It's boring. It's written in a contrived way. Well, you know, you could say that about, I see the park. I see the movie, I see the table. I mean, is that authentic? That That's not authentic. It's also written in a different way um, for young children, but that, that different way is not helpful for children with dyslexia or children with any types of reading struggles because that whole um, idea of that children will just learn to read if they're given words to memorize uh, is, is not ideal. They need to learn how to blend sounds and read words without picture cueing or any other type of cueing. So. But I love that you say that because I remember learning to read. I remember doing that in um, kindergarten. I remember my classroom. I remember sitting in the little circles that we read in. I even remember the books themselves. Was it Shakespeare? No, it wasn't Shakespeare you, because I was six. But I was so proud of being able to read the sentence, I see the park. It doesn't have to be to be or not to be, to be engaging to a six-year-old. A six-year-old is simply proud of the accomplishment itself. And I think that that's kind of gotten lost in the argument itself. Like, like you were just saying, the child wants to learn how to read. They're interested in that and they feel proud of themselves when they achieve it. Sorry, stuff's falling off my desk. <laughs> they feel proud of that when they achieve that. So I, I've never liked the argument that they're boring because the kids don't care that they're boring. The kids care that they can read. Yeah, and they know quickly. They yes. know quickly if they're able to do it. And the stress level starts um, very early, as young as kindergarten, where they start differences mm -hmm. and um, unfortunate 
that uh, children have to go through suffering like mm -hmm. that. It's unnecessary. Right. They, they should be given books that they are um, able to read and reflects the phonics teaching that should be going on in the classroom. Right. So somebody just yeah, said, I wish, oh, sorry, did I? Oh, are you, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, no. It's, I wish the open court would republish the reading program from the 80s where children learned actually, because what you're talking about was what was part of open court, um, where children le actually learned sound for letters. Example, uh, a mixer makes, so an example of that. But I had to read that really quickly because next week we're actually having two of the, the contributors to open court on Coffee Talk. So well, that's hilarious because um, I, you were proud in, of that, in, my, right? in my first book, yeah. and I, I don't think I mentioned open court by name, Yeah, but, um, and I know you read my book. So uh, I did mention that when I first started teaching 1986, we were pulling the sound cards. Open court comes with sound cards, like buh, buh, beating heart. To give you an example, yeah. in the 80s, everything was whole language. They were taking the sound cards off the walls. And I was happy about that because I was like, oh, you know, I was taught that children will just be able to pick words up right. and be able to learn to read if they're surrounded by books and this will give them the love of reading. So uh, meanwhile, the teachers in the school who relied on open court, senior teachers who knew this is a good program, so a good way to teach kids, were hiding the teacher books. And they were going to use that with the door closed because oh, wow. they knew that was a way that kids learned to read. So it's so oh. funny that you mentioned open court because uh, what was very effective became unpopular in the 80s. Right, so, right. well, and it's yeah. sad that you say that because there's still teachers that are sneaking, teaching common sense things like, you know, they're doing it without people knowing because it's it's frowned upon and that's that's too bad. And that's been going on for a long time. We, and that's why we need to make change as you're doing, Marion, because that's, it can't, you know, we have this great program and we'll hear more about that on the next Coffee Talk because two, the two people were actually part of Read Open Court that are going to be on next week, um, Marvy and Terry. Um, and so we, uh, but it's interesting because it worked, like you're saying. And you were reading first uh, coach, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So. Mm. And uh, that, well, that was, uh, it, you know, all this science of reading started really to pick up in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And then with the No Child Left Behind Act, uh, you know, reading first came in, in, um, you know, 2000, 2001, um, where it started to pick up. And we started to bring all this back. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, yeah. And but by this, point, by this point, teachers were entrenched in the whole language. Uh, and then what they called at that point, balanced literacy. So uh, we just uh, have not been able to turn this back completely. Even with reading first, there was quite a lot of resistance that I talked about in mm -hmm. my book. Um, but I'm hopeful now with the internet and uh, 
really in enlightening parents about mm -hmm. this, that parents are the force. Yeah. Parents are the ones who are going to turn this around because it's you can't hide anymore. Mm -hmm. That's the whole thing. Schools were able to, in the past, basically, you know, do what they wanted. And parents mm -hmm. just believed that the professionals knew best. But now that parents uh, are learning, and that is my goal, to get this message out there um, through the back door, as Marion said, I always use that expression, we have to go through the back door. Um, mm -hmm. That's... Um, Sorry, <laughs> we, we, we have to um, really try to work through the back door and let other people know about what's important, parents, professionals in the community, so that everyone could be a little bit uh, more involved in the decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we need, we need to kind of start wrapping up, but there's a, I remembered what the question was that I wanted to ask Marion. So I remember a few months ago, Faith reached out to me about volunteering for your organization. So I wanted to kind of help get that message out for you as well. What sort of, what is it to volunteer for Teach My Kid to Read and how can somebody go about doing that for your organization? That's a really good question. We do have a flyer on the website or you can contact us anytime at info at teachmykidtoread. Org. But if you are in New York, we definitely need volunteers. Um, I was at a library training, you know, at the Southern Adirondack system, and we have very few volunteers um, in those libraries. And after a couple of a couple of directions, one after we do a, a professional development presentation to a library system, individual libraries want more information. They maybe want more help setting up an event for uh, a parent. Maybe they want to brainstorm a bit about, um, you know, just how many kids are struggling in their community and what some of the options are. And that's where the individual volunteers working with the libraries are really, really helpful. So that's definitely the role. That's the main role of the volunteer is, you know, we provide some training. Our heavy time is October because that's where we ask them to set up a display, have some have some events and it, maybe you know, have some speakers come in. So we really need volunteers to work with either their local library or a couple of libraries. I know I reached out in Rochester because we're going to be there in a couple of weeks and we've got a lot of libraries coming and, uh, I, you know, there might be a, a point person there. But if I have to, if through our sources here in the Capital District or some of the volunteers around here, we have to um, work with those libraries. It can be done, but it's so much better with volunteers. And, you know, you can put some of, you know, you, you have our support, you can do your own thing with them. And I'll, I don't know if Barbara Mara Dower is out there, you know, because I can't see any of the questions. She was integral to helping in Long Island. And I mean, she managed a ton of libraries and then she got individual. She worked with individual volunteers who worked with those libraries. And that's really where it blooms because, you know, we have a little bit of a, a, 
a fluid back and forth with them um, as issues come up with their particular community and library. And what we're trying to do is get them to the point where, you know, they start to realize based on the resources, based on their new knowledge of this world from both an early reader and a struggling reader perspective, what they can do, maybe maybe even working together a couple of libraries or individually with, you know, their specific funding. So the role of the volunteer is really, um, you know, definitely the individual library. But, you know, we also can use help in, as, as an organization. I want to be clear that we are a new 501c3 and uh, we are not a foundation by any stretch. And, uh, you know, if somebody has a specific skill, one day I'm going to just start crying on, uh, you know, live, one of these live, um, live, uh, apps because I, you know, I can't tell you the amount of time I spend on our website trying to get uh, some little feature to work or, you know, just some general help. If somebody has a specific skill, chances are we're probably, you know, we could probably use it. I just want to, I, I know we have to go. There's somebody who seems, um, wants an answer about a reading trajectory. I know you, but please help me in reading this with a reading trajectory and how to interpret it. So I think, I, you know, I know we have to go. If you're talking about a trajectory, each child should be meeting certain standards by a certain time. The trajectory is how steep it is for your child to get to that point. So for a child who is on target, it's not going to be such a steep trajectory. If a child is here and should be here, that's a very steep trajectory. In order to close the gap, we need to give intensive intervention. I hope that answers that person's question. You, you answer things so beautifully. Like, I'm like, wow, I just, I have to say, you do. You have a way of really explaining things so beautifully. I understand that much better now. So I'm sure, I'm sure that helped because that's very well explained. So what she had asked earlier was, what is a traje trajectory? And I think you just explained that. How is it assessed? And how do you interpret a trajectory? So interpretation is there is a line. If you look at a graph, there is a normal progression of skills at a certain grade point. Then there is the individual child's trajectory of growth mm -hmm. that's matched up. If let's say that child is flatlining, the line is going to be below the mm -hmm. aim line. If the child is following the trajectory, it should pretty much mirror what's going on. Mm -hmm. At some points, the child might go above the trajectory mm -hmm. of what's expected. But um, that's all that means. Mm -hmm. This is why you everybody needs to read Faith's books because seriously, she is brilliant at taking these very abstract con you know concepts, these complex things, and making it easy for everyone to understand. I know it's you. You, I've learned so. I mean, you've helped me to make things make sense that weren't making sense for me before. So thank you, and I think that everybody can really benefit from having things kind of broken down in the way that you do it, Faith. So. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for Faith's friendship because she can probably tell you the thousand times that I've messaged her going, okay, so I was told this. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> exactly. Yes.
It's very, it is confusing. And quite honestly, I, I hate all of that stuff. I hate when people talk um, in, in circles and, and use convoluted education babble. It's just, um, it's insulting to people. Yeah. Talk in plain English. This way, if you're really confident about what you're doing, you don't have to talk above people's heads. You right. really well, can't simple. I was going to say, maybe we, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Maybe we end on this note then. Faith is an, this is from Linda Terry. Faith is an ex, I love this. Faith is an expert at the crayon translations. It's part of what makes her book so easily digestible for everyone, experts and parents alike. She couldn't have said it better. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> Well, thank you both so much for coming on. I'm so thrilled that we finally got to talk about Teach My Kid to Read because your organization is so worthwhile, what you're trying to do, the information that you're trying to put in the libraries and how you're trying to serve the community through that effort. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And Dawn, I saw there's a Dawn from Long Island. Reach yeah. out, Dawn. <laughs> I'm here for you, Dawn, whoever you are. <laughs> teach my kid to read so okay. thank, thank you both so much everybody have a really great weekend i'm going to run into town now for the tickets that i have in 45 minutes i'm going to <laughs> go ahead. Go. thank you take care everybody bye bye, everybody. bye. bye.